Good to have you guys here. Let me just start with prayer and then we'll get started. So, thank you, Lord, for today. We just thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Lord, that um, I may just be, I may portray your, the way you describe your world in, in the Bible accurately. I may be a help and um, not a hindrance. And I pray that we're able to just focus. And I just thank you, God, for this group and for this week and for all that you've done. And thank you dearly for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, first off, let me just tell you guys, like, I really like you guys. Thanks. I really do. <laughs> I really I was telling me and Josh stayed up to like two in the morning last night, just like talking about how much we like you guys. So um, maybe it was like one thirty. So. Um, oh well, I didn't go to bed till like three. So, but I was Netflixing it. You know, so um, I was wound up from playing Signs. So every time I play that game, I can't go to sleep for like two hours afterwards. I'm just like, you know. but it's really fun. But anyways. The reason I'm telling you that is because I want you to understand, like, I, I, I completely reshaped this. I wrote it differently from the other day because I, I've gotten to know you a little bit. You know, I've gotten to know enough of you and had enough conversations with each one of you with pretty much almost everybody a little bit to just kind of get a glimpse of who's here and what, you know, obviously I don't know know you. I couldn't do that. But so I, I wanted to tailor this or hopefully just be really helpful towards you guys. Um, and so I'm going to do that. But I like you, and I actually care for you, and I actually really care about what Challenge SC is doing. Like, I am so excited. I can't tell you how excited I am for what, the opportunity that exists in this room. Like, God, there really is an opportunity for you guys um, to really reshape the world. So don't take that lightly. Take that seriously. And so anyways, let me, which kind of sets up, Jeremy actually asked me to, he wanted me to talk to you guys a little bit about kind of the road of life and what are some of the detours or pit holes or pitfalls or whatever that people sometimes get off the track towards maturity, spiritual maturity, you know, and then how can people get back on? Kind of similar to like Josh used the relay race, the whole baton pass off. How do you stay in the race? How do you even join the race? And how do you not drop the baton? The baton, however you call it. So, but before I do that, let me just quickly tell you just a brief little bit about myself. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about myself later. And, um, but I've been married, I'm, you know, Scott Lambert, if you haven't known that yet. And I've been married for 21 years to my wonderful, beautiful, sweet wife, Penny. Penelope is really her name. So only her mom calls her Penelope. I tried to, but it didn't stick. So. <laughs> Penny's good. And I grew up watching uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse, and they always had that little. Anybody watch that, or am I just older than everybody? <laughs> but they had this little girl, Penny, and it was like a cartoon. But, anyways, um, she's wonderful. We met in college freshman year. We were married after sophomore year. She was 19, I was 22. You'll see why I was older in a little bit. Um, we have two kids. My daughter, her name is Ellie Lambert, and she goes to Chico State, part of Chico Challenge, and she's um, a sophomore this year. She's only 18, almost 19. She's really young for her grade. And uh, my son Luke is 17. He's 6'2", and he's gorgeous. 
and uh, my daughter is too. But um, so, um, but they're they're great kids. I love them to death, and it's been a joy. And hard to raise children, but it's been a joy. Um, I um, I got my psychology. I got my undergrad in psychology back in the '90s. And graduated about 2000, 2001, somewhere like that. And um, I did five years of school since I was married. Graduated the undergrad in psychology. Was immediately going to go into uh, UCI, and I wanted to get a research degree. I wanted to do psychological research. And then God changed my heart along the way that I really got a desire for people and for helping people. And so I switched to more of a um, counseling psychology degree. I was going to go into grad school afterwards, and then when I graduated as a senior, and you know I'm in my mid-20s at this point, I'm married, I'm already, my wife's pregnant with our first child, and I realized I don't know anything about life. How am I going to help anybody? And I don't, I don't trust, forgive me for this, I don't trust the clinical models and therapeutic techniques enough to just go apply them without experiencing how life really works. So I wanted to live life. And I had a strong desire to plug into, it was very biblical to me to be a part of a local congregation and to make my life about supporting the local congregation and then just be a tent maker, figure out what job I needed to do and then see what God did. And that's what we did. We joined Church in the Valley Diamond Bar, about the same time Josh did. Grew up, I'm taking a little bit extra time on this, so I'll move it here pretty quickly. But, you know, we grew up there. We went with Josh to help plant OCC, my wife and I, took our kids with us. And um, in that process, I did eventually get my master's in counseling psychology, um, became a psychotherapist, practiced for a while in a variety of different settings, and then eventually went into pastoral ministry for Orange Crest Community Church almost two years ago. I still teach part-time in a counseling ministry grad program at CBU and at Gateway Seminary. Um, and that's kind of the extent of my professional career. There's a lot of other things in there, and I'll fill them in if you want to know per- personally. But um, I, but my goal was is I really just wanted to gain ministry experience before I, you know, and, and I got those opportunities. I mean, the, the amount of ministry experience and training I got in real life in a church setting is far more valuable than any kind of you know, university training I've ever received, even at a grad level. Now, university training was really helpful and still applicable, still helpful, but this was far more. So, um, and that's where we're at now. So, what I, you know, I kept thinking about, like, what, you know, what are the pitfalls? What are all the things, you know, that we could talk about, you know? And then I just kind of, you know, if you think about, you might have seen this principle. There's this principle, like, you know, the one degree of separation in life, you know, if you're plotting on a map, you know, and you point your compass, you know, at 108 degrees south or something like that, you know, and you're going that way and you're going to go on a straight line, which forgive me, I'm not an artist, you can't draw straight, but you know, here's your destination and you're starting here, we start walking in life and we have a series of decisional points, okay? And so we're all going to have this series of decisional points in our life. And so there's going to be all of these different little dots here that make up the line, you know? And at some point, there's all there's these little diversions where, and let's say this represents biblical maturity. We're just going to call that our end point, okay? Whether you believe in that or not, and I'm not mad at anybody who doesn't, 
That's just what I'm going to use as our endpoint, okay? There's going to be these little diversions. And they're going to be just one degree off. Now, that's probably more than one degree. One degree is very small. Matter of fact, you could probably walk for miles or a long time, one degree off from your destination and still, oh, there's my trail. I see it. But 10, 20, 30 miles down the road, you'll be far off track. You guys getting the analogy here? 10, 20, 30 years of just one degree off can separate you because the gap just continues to grow. You know? And that's not accurate there, okay? But we're going to go with it. <laughs> and, um, and then eventually you're way off from your target. So I kept trying to think, all right, what are all the things that, that what are all the little, and just so you know, reality looks kind of like this. You know, and that's how God kind of guides and directs stuff. So you're going to be okay. But um, am I making sense there? Yeah. Okay, I'm trying to rush through that process a little bit. Um, I only heard one yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. Thank you. You can say no. Any any questions? No. Okay. So, um, I uh, I keep trying to think. What's the one thing that just draws, like takes people off? You know, and I just decided to narrow it to one theme, and it really is our heart or our worldview. It's a very big category in our human experience that that decides which direction we're going to go in life. What I mean by heart is, you know, obviously not your physical heart. I mean the central guidance system of your life, where your goals and your intentions and your strategies and your desires come from. I, and I'll draw this out in a little bit. But I mean, you know, when they say follow your heart, that's what I mean. That's the heart. And that, one way to describe it, one of my mentors describes it as the cockpit in the airplane, Right? heart is the cockpit of the airplane. It's where it sets direction. Your heart sets direction. Now we could get into all the different, which I love to do, like what that actually is and, you know, all the different, you know, the mind, brain, spiritual realm, cognitive reality, material reality, spiritual reality. We could try to understand what the heart is, but we just know it to be true. We experience it. And so, you know, here's, here's some, so, so my, my, not a question to you. My statement to you is, you know, I grew up hearing, don't follow your heart in church, you know, don't follow your heart. It'll lead you astray. Don't follow your heart. It'll lead you astray. Would you guys agree? You're, but the, the issue is, is we can't do anything else but follow our heart. Chuck kind of said this today. And I'll, 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 let me just give you a couple passages. By the way, I'm going to give you a handout at the end I don't want you to have it now. I want you to have it at the end. It has these passages and it has some diagrams. I might be drawn to just so you have that. But above all else, this is from Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart. And the heart is a very biblical idea, guys. I'm not just making this up. No, nobody just made this up. This is a biblical idea of how people work. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from your heart. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good, that's Matthew 12, 33. And then Luke 6, 45 says, the good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good. The 
evil person out of the evil treasure of their heart produces evil. And so um, that's kind of the idea. We will have to follow a heart. So let me tell you two quick case studies of two people. And then I'm going to get in. And so here's kind of what we're going to do. I'm going to give you two quick case studies to kind of set up this idea. I'm going to explain to you a model for how the heart works. It's called the heart diagram. Some of you might have seen it. We're going to workshop it a little bit. And then we're going to kind of get into some practical application stuff. And then I might rush through the heart explanation a little bit because Chuck used his pyramid thing, which is similar but different. Mine's way better. <laughs> uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, it's not mine either. But um, it makes sense to me. But let me tell you just real quickly about 20-year-old Scott. All right? Me, Scott. You know? Um, raised in a really good home, Christian family, parents were very missional people, raised us well, very intentionally, um, extremely loving. I had lots of great experiences and opportunities, okay? By the time I was 20, whoa, um, and I'm, I, I told the first people, sorry I'm having to use my computer, I rewrote this and I don't have a way to print it, so I don't have, I just have to work off this. And this is for your benefit, not mine, I could tell you this, but we'll be here all day. So I, if you've talked to me at all, I chase a lot of white rabbits <laughs> because I think in this kind of way, <laughs> you know, I circle, we get there, you know, because my mind just can't help think, well, what about this and what about this and what about this, you know, and to come up with a holistic view. So, but anyways, and by the time I was 20, I ended up addicted to methamphetamines, practically homeless, living from... Living from like just drug friend's house to drug friend's house, jobless, had my car repossessed. Um, and I came from Beaver Cleaverville, guys, Missouri. My family life was good. It was very warm. And I was, and, and anyway, so I ended up in this realm and I'm just in bondage, guys. And I'm sitting here thinking, I'm listening to this song one night. I, used to, I only had a little CD player left and I only had a few possessions at this point. And my parents were in Missouri. I was in Southern California. I was in Riverside. And back then we called it Wiggerside. You know, Wigger's a term for a meth addict. And so and that was back when they used to make it here before they made it in Mexico and shipped it up. And so it was very prevalent. And it was very much, it was very different. And, you know, there had been a long story that kind of led up to this moment, which I'll explain a little bit later. But the bottom line is this, is that I'm laying there in bed one night. And... I'm going to sleep, and about several nights in a row, I would just have this like moment of clarity of like, what the heck am I doing? How in the world did I end up here? I don't want this. But I did want it, because I chose it. But I don't want it. And by that point, we're talking about a chemical process that has taken over and hijacked my heart, I will, but I didn't want it, but I did, and I'll tell you why I wanted it and how I got there later, but I didn't want it, and so I'm laying there, and I listen to this song, and I believed in God, guys. I never dropped that. I just ignored him. I pushed him out with more substances. I would get freak out guilty sometimes. I think God was going to kill me, and then I would just get more high. And then I'd forget about it, move on with my life. 
And I'd freak out and think God was going to kill me. And just get more high and forget about it and move on. And so I, I really did believe. And so one night I'm laying there in bed and I'm listening to this. I only had this one CD left, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. And I listened to it over and over again every night when I went to bed. And I, there's a song, Time. It's one of my favorite songs because of just the music, but the words in it. And I just kept hearing. And the only phrase I can really remember right now is just it, it talks about, it's basically just about wasting your life. And it's like 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And then it's like, you know, and then it goes, and it's great. But, and then it was like, then it has a line later that says like, yada, yada, yada. Can't remember that part. And it's like, one day closer to death. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't want this. And I just, in my own little way, I just started crying out for help. And then it took my parents about a month to track me down. They tracked me down and my dad said, Scott, we're coming to California because something's wrong with you. We don't know what. You're not living where you're supposed to be. I was supposed to be living with my aunt and uncle and I had left several months before. Something's wrong and we don't know. So we're coming out. And mind you, I was a high school dropout at this point. It's getting ready to turn 21. I dropped out two months before my senior year ended simply because I was done going to school. I was just, I had enough and I was done. I did not want to. It didn't matter to me, the consequence of not finishing. And so he said, we're coming out. And I just made a commitment right then and there. I said, when my dad comes out, I will tell him and my mom everything. And I will beg God for help. And I will do whatever God and they say. And, and then God rescued me. Which that's a whole other story. But God, it required rehab, you know, required rehab and some things like that. But God rescued me. And I didn't go as dark and deep as people go. People have much worse stories than I do. Mine was very brief and I was very lucky. It's not luck, it's, I was very blessed. And God rescued me. And he gave me a vision in rehab. And, he, and then the vision was this. And I was 21. Now I was still 20. I graduated. I turned 21 right after I got out. And it was, and mind you, remember, I married my wife at 22. It's kind of crazy. What was she thinking? And I'll tell you what she was thinking. Now, anyways, <laughs> but um, um, she saw a change. She saw the new Scott. She never saw the old Scott. She knew of the old Scott. She never experienced it, though. She saw the new one. I thank God for that. But anyway, she, we're, um, I gotta watch my time here because I got stuff to do. Um, we, um, well, anyways, let me just move on. So, anyways, God rescued me. And so here's my question, which we'll answer later Why did I do this? What happened to me? How did I? Go from having born into the kingdom of God, essentially, if that was such a thing. Maybe it is. All the great parenting opportunities they were. How did I go from that to that? How did I get so far off track? You know? Here's another quick case study. Okay, this gentleman, his name is Clark. He has superpowers. 
and he is a gift to the world. We're talking about Superman, in case it's unclear. <laughs> this isn't a real person. He's a gift to the world, okay? He protects the world from evil and harm, or at least the city of Metropolis and its surrounding county areas. Isn't that kind of weird? But um, he's a gift. He has a purpose and a mission, and he does it well, and he wants to do it. And he loves to do it. He loves people. He loves humanity, and he serves them well. One day, he meets this woman, Lois Lane, and he falls in love with her. And guess what he does? If you've seen the Christopher Reeve Superman 2, <laughs> he finds out a way to completely give up his superpowers forever and become a mortal human so he can marry Lois Lane. Now, I want him to have love. He needs it, probably. I want him to find a companion. He needs it. But he decides to do that. And then what happens? Evil aliens come down. They threaten to rule, and they have the ability to rule and completely enslave the world because Superman's not there to protect them. Why is Superman messing around with Lois Lane when he has a very, very important job to do? Why is he doing that? So let's look. I'm going to use Harold Bullock. It's in the book Sharper Strokes. If you're not familiar with that book, written by Harold Bullock, you can get it online. He has this heart diagram, okay? And again, I'll give you this, but I want you to see this and you can take whatever notes. And this is our metaphoric heart, okay? And I'm just going to quickly tell you why people do what they do, and then we'll drop back to my story. Okay, inside the heart, inside each human, okay? Inside each human, we're full of desires and goals, okay? So we have desires over here and goals. They're kind of the same thing. Some of them are positive and some of them are negative, you know? And what I mean by positive and negative is good or bad. I mean, can you guys, you guys all know what I mean by desires, positive and negative? Okay. I've taught this model to a, a complete second language Korean class. English second language into Korean class, so I, you know, I, I, I can use more words if I need to, you know. So I just want to make sure it's understood. Um, so, um, so we have we, we have all these desires. They're both good and bad. Where we're born with them, but here's what we filter. It's kind of like, yeah, man, Chuck, still in my thunder. Okay, it's kind of like his thirty thousand different things that tell our will each day and our will selects. So here's my thing for the will. Okay, And his was like, what was this pyramid structure? He had all those different structures there. But here's mine. Or not mine. Here's Harold's. <laughs> you have your perspectives. And you have your values. Okay, And all this is taking place inside the heart. Okay, All these desires are filtered through those. Make sense? Your perspectives are basically your understanding and your awareness of cause and effect relationships within life and reality. How you think things work. How you view the world. Your worldview. Your worldview actually is a combination of both of these. You know, we call it worldview, but it's a little more complex than just simply saying worldview. And worldview is important. Uh, values is actually what's most important to you. So here's my analogy. Recently, I've been trying to lose weight. Okay, I need to lose like 30 pounds, okay, to get back in climbing shape. 
I really want to lose weight. But have I lost weight? I haven't. Do you know why? Because I value my food freedom a little more. Now, I haven't really started yet. But, <laughs> but it's going to be really hard for me. Because I value, I want to do what I want to do when it comes to food and exercise. And I actually, I know myself. I'm, Chuck's thing today was pretty helpful. For me. It was motivating. Because I, I really know what's in my heart. And I value my freedom more than I value. Now, that's a small thing, okay? I'll give you a, a stronger one here. When I was a high school, I had a best friend, this girl, from my freshman year all the way through. I loved her with all of my heart. She already had a boyfriend when I met her, and she always had a boyfriend. She was beautiful. She had a stunning personality. She was great. Some reason, me and her just clicked, and we got along so good. She spent far more time with me than any of her boyfriends. They were always older, too, and I would get these late-night drunk calls from them all, threatening to come beat, beat me up because I'm stupid and I'm hanging out with her girlfriend. I shouldn't have been doing that, but I was. But I loved her, and I was not wise and smart and had no game and chose the friend route. This doesn't work. Well, finally, my senior year in high school, I got up enough nerve and busted into her drama class and told her I loved her and declared my love to her. Well, guess what? She was super flattered and super ticked off because for years she had been defending me to all these guys. And I'm only just setting up the intensity of the story so it makes sense later what I'm going to tell you about the values thing here. Because she had been defending me to her boyfriends. We're just friends. No. I had told everybody, parents, friends, I will marry this girl one day. I still, there's still love for her in my heart. I have no contact with this woman. And I shall not and will not have any contact with this woman. And I love my wife more and deeper, but I still have, there's a place in my heart for this one. So I moved away. I went on vacation, dropped out of high school, never had a shot with her, moved away to California from Missouri when I was 18. I actually went on vacation for two weeks and just never returned. That's really what happened. I went on a Greyhound to visit some family and I just never returned. And uh, still haven't. It's been since 1993, you know, so... Um, she, um, I, I did go back for a few months, so I lied there. I went back for a few months after rehab because I had to finish my, my last year of high school. I had to do it in adult education school, so I did a whole year in three months and just cranked it out, and then I went to college right away in the spring. And so um, I got reconnected. Or she was home visiting, and we got reconnected, and, and there was an op there was a, a opportunity. There was a window. My window had arrived. Well, here's the setting of what I was going through at the time. I had just gotten out of rehab, and I deeply, I say that a lot, don't I? <laughs> I deeply loved Jesus. He had won my heart, and I was his forever, hopefully. And I was going to do whatever it took to follow him. I was so thankful for his salvation and his rescuing me, and I loved him. 
and I wanted to follow him. And I was trying to search the scriptures for in my conscience for any way to still marry this woman who didn't know better. I was even looking at like the story of Hosea, you know, married the prostitute. <laughs> I got my scriptural backing, <laughs> doing it. And then I said, you know what I said? I said, God, I love this woman, but I love you more. And so I sat with the distress and discomfort and sadness of letting that go. And then I met my wife not long later. Now, that doesn't always happen. Maybe I would have never gotten married. And I still would have loved Jesus. So, that's values. We sort those. So what, what do you, the question is, is what do I value more than God? That's how you sort your values. Because that is the question. It's not that we don't love God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you submit your life, which if you're not, it's okay. It's not mad. I'm just saying if you are. It's not, do you love God? What do you love more? And so that's that's our problem and our perspective. So out of these values and perspectives comes, um, I mean, I'll simplify it. There's some other categories you have in here, but it's our behavior. This is what we choose and select, you know. You know, a, a man's on a business trip with a coworker. They're at a conference. They go back to the hotel room, have dinner. She's really pretty. She invites him up to his room, but he's married. You know? He probably has some desires. He wants to sleep with her. But then he runs that through his old perspective and values thing here. And he actually, let's say he believes in God. He has a strong belief in God. And he knows, you know what? God's, God, God's going to know what I'm going to do here. He's going to see it. His eyes search the whole world. He's going to know what's going to happen. And you know what? I actually really love him, and I want to obey him. And I actually have a wife. Kids that I adopt. I don't want to hurt hurt them. I like I like my family. And yeah, this may achieve some kind of short-term sexual gratification that I if that's a word that I haven't ever had. Sorry to be so weird about that. <laughs> but I'm not gonna do it. But let's say he thinks, you know, sometimes God falls asleep. God can't see everything. Or God's okay. There's grace. You know, right? It's not works, right? It's grace. He wants me to be happy, right? Doesn't God want me to be happy? You know, that old hag at my house, we're really struggling. I mean, I, I did commit to her. But, boy... She's driving me crazy, and we haven't slept together in six months. I'm taking my shot. I'm sleeping with the coworker. I mean, this is the process. Do you see it? So, I'm going to trace back myself real quick. And here's, this is very simple, okay? In, in the Bible, which there's, there's a book called Fools and Follies, also written by Harold Bullock, okay? Where he did a 15-year study and sorry to promote him so much, but his research in this area is really effective and, and really understandable. I'm not sorry to promote him, but I have other books. I'm just using his two today. There's actually a subtitle of that, but Fools and Follies. 
by Harold Bullock. He basically, in the Bible, when the word fool appears in the English language, there's actually nine different original words with nine different meanings, okay? And I'm going to give you three of them today, which three describe the nature of our hearts since the fall of mankind. So I'm going to kind of tell you how this comes pre-wired and what you're working against and why it's so important to guard your hearts, okay? Because you become pre-wired with something different. But, so here's, but um, the other, there's five of them, which I'm not going to tell you what they are, but I'm just telling you this so you can understand. And this is a great theory of personality of almost abnormal, of, of like psychopathology, if those terms mean anything to you. A biblical theory of psychopathology. But some of those terms, they, five of those original words for foolishness describe our strategies and how we go about life getting what we want such as the easy way fool. There's a whole classification for the easy way in this book. This is 15 years of research to write this book. The fun way, the reactionary way, the controlling way, these are some of them. The glory way, you know, and everybody's a little blending of each one of them, and it's actually a really helpful book for your own personal like, growth because you can see, oh, that's why I do what I do. I'm just trying to get what I want out of people, and I use this tactic. You know, for me... I believe the Hebrew word is sackle. It's the fun way full. If I can trace back my life, and this is still a struggle that I have, is what makes sense to me. What You know how he talked about today, like you have 30,000 messages and what you select is what's pleasurable. And another way of saying it is people do what makes sense to them. What made sense to me is what's fun now. And I opted for that in any decisional moment-by-moment -moment situation throughout my childhood and adulthood. It actually didn't start until adolescence, until puberty kicked in. Something changed. And, you know, it was, what's fun now? What's fun now? What's fun now? And I selected against my own conscious, and it was a slow drift... It was a perspective, and it was actually more of a value thing. And as I selected these values and I got rewarded with more and more fun, my perspective would just, I would plot it out or I would rewire it to get what I wanted. But I was singularly focused on fun now. And one of the descriptions of that foolish style is, is uh, you know, doesn't really care about consequences. Blind desire doesn't care about consequences. That's what was going on here. That's why I did what I did. Now, what I've had to become, and I, God has done a big work in my life. I've had to become a person who works hard, who says no to fun, and, and actually is intentional in my daily choices. Now, an event like this where we're just having fun, you'll see me. You know, I, I can be very serious, guys. <laughs> I'm very intentional. But when I get around people and there's, it's just fun, I get energized. And just this, uh, almost this clown-type energy comes out of me, you know. But um, um, I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, and what was Superman searching for? He was searching for the fulfillment found in love. His highest agenda, the American, and the theme of this movie if you watch the movie, here's the tension that the Hollywood writers are playing with our hearts on. It's the American secular idea of 
The ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate objective of life is personal fulfillment and personal happiness. And that always, always encompasses love. And then it's also, the movie also is still dealing with the tension of mission and purpose and performance. And so it's dealing with these two American values of glory, purpose, and fulfillment, and love and personal happiness. When neither one of those are good enough, guys. But that's what was driving Superman. What Superman really needed to do, guys, we need him. He needed to say, sorry, Lois, you're not the gal for me. And go find Supergirl. Unfortunately, that's his cousin. <laughs> That'd be a little weird. But maybe she's like a distant cousin. I think she is. So, isn't it once it's your third cousin? It's okay. Um, actually, uh, incest is just taboo. It's, it's not real. But, um, or else Cain and Abel have some issues. Um, and so does anybody never mind um, so let me just quickly move on let me tell you a little bit about um, what the Bible has to say about what, what we come with and these are three of those other words and what we come pre-wired with and this is scary and this is why and so I'm going to tell you basically what the Bible says we come pre-wired with and then I'm going to quickly tell you what and this, this will apply to some of you, but not all of you. It'll apply to most everybody. But I'll tell you what the American secular worldview has basically pre-wired us with, you know, as just growing up here. Okay? And I'll just compare and contrast that real quick. Just so you're aware. I'm not trying to, like, I just want you to be aware so you know what you're up against. Because if you know what you're up against, you can plan a strategy to avoid fighting, you know? So... The first one is, the, 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 the word is evilith, but you don't need to know, and I'll give you this form later, and you'll have all this, but just hear this, I won't even say the words, but, so you'll have these, but stubborn self-centeredness, and this is one of the words in the Bible that says that we all come pre-wired from birth with, this is, the, this is the driving statement of our heart, I want what I want when I want it, I want what I want when I want it, look at a baby. Sorry. <laughs> I won't use any case studies. Um, I want what I want when I want it. This is how we are. The next thing is, is self-exaltation, which is pride. I want what I want when I want it, and guess what? I deserve it. I want what I want when I want it, and I deserve it. I ought to be treated a certain way. I ought to have this. And we're very sophisticated, and we start out very simple in that, and then we're sophisticated. A child is not wondering if they shouldn't scream for what they want. They know they want it, and they know they deserve it. They are the center of the universe. And the third one, and if you've ever seen kids knock out their sister over a toy, you know this is true, is, it's called ra, is the, is the original word, but it means harm. Willingness to hurt others. And this is actually the Bible's definition of evil. Evil sounds so hard. Evil! You know, it sounds so, like, terrible. But really what it is, it has different levels. It can go pretty dark. But ultimately what it is, it's I, it's I want what I want when I want it. Or no, that's basically this, sorry. Evil is, or harm is, I don't want to hurt you, but... I want what I want when I want it, 
and I deserve it. So if you don't get out of my way, I will hurt you. I will hurt you. And so this is what we're pre-wired with. And you just got to take my, I think you can agree that you're pre-wired with that. And, and so here's the issue, guys. And I'm going to, well, let me tell you this part. And then we'll, so we have three enemies, real quickly. Three enemies in, in life. We have our flesh, which is just our physical makeup. You know, the Bible calls it the flesh. And it wars against us. And it's that I want what I want and I want to do it. And, you know, it's I want that chocolate cake, but I know I shouldn't. Or I want to, whatever the sin is. It's, it's desire, blind desire. I want, I want, I want. It drives us and it drives us and it wars against us. So that's an enemy we have that we're facing in this world. And because the world's broken, things aren't the way they ought to be. Even the air isn't the way it is. Even nothing works the way it ought to work. It's decaying. And so the next one is the devil, according to the scriptures, and his enemy, his demons. And this is real. You know, you just, if you don't believe it, research it. But this is real. The Bible says it's real. And there's not like just a thousand demons. There's like billions of demons throughout the world. And they actually are very active. And their primary objective is deception. So they work in a lot of different ways. And then and a third enemy is the world system. It's culture. Here's a way to think of culture. And I'm still in this. Is imagine the world system and culture and whatever culture you're from. This is, this is the case, Okay. Imagine, and I'm just going to specifically focus on American culture, but imagine the culture is kind of like a water skier skiing behind a boat. You know? And guess who's driving the boat? It's the devil. And it's not like it's some dark, like, horror movie culture, because the devil's more subtle. He takes a lot of truth and what he thinks we want, blinds it with truth, with, with falseness. And so, um, so here's what you end up with. And you'll have this on a sheet, but you can keep notes too. I'm going I'm to show you. So the process of how we view reality now has really changed in our current American culture. And some of this is good and some of this is just neutral. But I'm just going to explain to you why it's so hard for us. Because here's part of guarding your heart is we have to become... We have to, our worldview and our heart needs to become more biblically oriented. Our perspectives need to be based out of actual biblical truth. And our values need to be, what is the Bible value? So here's what, so basically just because of industrial revolution and modernization and everything, this isn't actually bad, but we've become more of a mechanistic society. We think mechanistically. We think A to B, you know, zeros and ones. That makes a lot of sense to us. Machines, you know, it makes a lot of sense. You turn it on, something happens, you know. Well, the Bible's written in a language of describing things. It actually comes from a more Eastern mindset. And it's written in a way that is actually organismic. Meaning it uses a lot of like, a seed dies and becomes a plant, you know. Sheep are herded by a shepherd, you know. It's just, it's, it's a very, and that's actually much more complex than mechanistic. And it's also much more nuanced. 
and it's much more organic. It deals in different kind of perspectives. And I think we could probably work pretty good to get those paradigms, but we lose things sometimes by not understanding how it says things. Another one is the primary reality for the American secular worldview is the material reality. You know, there's three realities, material, cognitive, and spiritual. And the primary, which means like where, where the material reality is where it all is and it's all ever going to be and it's what matters now. It is what matters now, but there's another reality. And it's, and it's where our primary, and what that means is that our primary methods of fixing ourselves can be found in the material reality. Where the Bible's viewpoint is the primary reality is the spiritual. Now hopefully, I know we don't have time, I'd love to go through and actually really explain and workshop this very well to explain like all the different nuances of why that matters, but that matters. Can you see how that matters or no? Only three people said yeah. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and if you can't, you can talk to me about that at dinner um, or sometime. It matters. So, for example, like the Spirit reveals to me how to understand empirical evidences. The Spirit tells me what's true. The Spirit, through, you know, it reveals the Word of God to man and at capital T truth. The Spirit is the primary function of where healing actually really comes from. And the spirituality is where we will, our primary residence will be. Because the material will decay and die. So another one, quickly, is, you know, just the primary focus is individual. Now, some cultures are more family focused, but the Bible is family. It's more communal. It's not even family. It's communal understanding. You know, I've heard a, heard a theologian once say that the the book of Romans, anytime it says you in Romans, in the original language, it's actually saying you all. You know, you all. It's not you. And we've lost that in American society. That's why my hat says community. It really is why it says community. Although there's a gap somewhere. It says TV or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it drives me crazy. My wife bought this for me at Chico Community Church, and I wear it all the time because I'm, it's my, I'm flying the flag. Community is so important. Christian community, biblical community is so effective in helping people change and grow and become who they are, and we suffer by being individualistic in our faith. And we suffer by just sampling church, by just being another club we're a part of. So the, the primary purpose in American secular, I've talked about this a little bit, but it's happiness, fulfillment, performance. That's kind of the primary purpose. The biblical primary purpose is God's glory. We're very different ends. And I'll give you hope with that in a minute. Um, wholeness. You know, if we think of being whole, we think of, um, we think of health and well-being in American secular society. You know, I was talking talking to um, Tomina before this, and I was saying, you know, the, the chief goal of most psychotherapy is the amelioration of distress. The Bible's goal of psychotherapy, if there was one, is maturity. And that's the Bible's goal of wholeness. It's maturity. Distress can be a really good motivator to mature. 
So um, health and hold, health and well-being is is good. I'm not saying like be unhealthy and don't be in, you know, don't achieve for like peace and happiness. It's just not enough. It's maturity. And then the main authority in our life is self or democracy, you know, or a democratic republic. Although I think the democratic part's been killed, but that's for good people can disagree on that. Um, but we're, you know, self is the highest authority. I mean, think about it. Even you, just think about this for a second. See if you can even try this on. When you read the Bible or you think about God, at least when you're exploring it, weren't you exploring it from the mindset of, let's see if this is true. Let's see if this is, I will be the one who says if this is good or not. I used to actually, when I was a new Christian, actually a a moderate, more than a new Christian, I used to actually read the Bible and think, man, I wonder if God was right for doing that. Because you know, it was really my standard of what righteousness was. That really, you know, it's just my, my own internal authoritative perspective is what all that mattered, you know? That, that's, that's, that's blinding to us. And then the Bible's his lordship, as we adhere ourselves to God and his lordship over our lives. And so, um, so here's, the, here's the deal. Here's why guarding your heart is so important. Worldview, guys. And the heart is inevitable. You will get it will get shaped. It's already shaped. You're already born with, you know. I want what I want when I want it. I deserve it, and I'm willing to hurt you to get it. Now that could be trained. Some of those can be trained out of you by your parents, or at least tampered. Especially, I want what I want when I want it, and willingness to do harm. But you'll never get rid of self-exaltation. You'll always hit the battle pride. I will at least. Um, but worldview is inevitable, but it's not always intentional by us as Christians. And to be a serious Christian, or even just whatever your faith is, to be a serious person who is trying to shape their worldview in their heart, it requires intentionality. It requires intentionality. It requires what you... Chuck is giving Chuck Madden's example of his intentionality of shaping his heart. That's what he gave us today. It was brilliant. I'm sitting there watching that. I'm like, this is how Chuck Madden approaches intentionality. And this is a beautiful thing. And I need to figure out how Scott Lambert's going to do that. Because I'm not Chuck Madden. But it's a beautiful thing. You know? So, um, here's the... Let me see what, what time I got. Okay, we got a few minutes left. Um, I just want to tell you why I'm, one reason I'm very thankful. And some of you heard the story. One reason I'm very thankful. I actually, I, if I had hours, I would just sit here and tell you story after story after story of why. Not of where I almost diverted one degree of separation and God brought me lovingly and gently back. But story after story of story also of just how I am so incredibly thankful, okay, for God shaping my heart. I am, I'm 44, so for some of you, all of you, I'm from your future. <laughs> 
So I am coming back beckoning you from the future and telling you, take this seriously. And here's one story of why I am so thankful. Okay. I had a brother commit suicide at 30. Left a wife and two children. It was horrible. It was horrible. It's almost 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And he was a pastor. He was fired. And he was shamed. He was living a lie. I would have never hired him as a pastor. But he was. He had issues from his whole life. And he just never really cared. Maturity never was attractive to him. Glory was attractive to him. And he knew how to play the game in the Midwest Southern Baptist culture to get glory. Now he also did, there was a part of him, it's not all that bad, but that is part of the story. So there's a lot to that story. I don't want to get too sidetracked. But here's, I remember when I found out he had died. Oh, it was a horrible night. And because suicide just, it's not just the death. It's so like dying by suicide is so... It just brings so much shame and bitterness to his name and to our family and just to the circumstances. It's just it's horrible. And if you ever experienced it, you know what I'm talking about. And so I remember thinking that night, here was a thought that came to my head. God, you're pretty sovereign, meaning you're in control. You could have stopped this. You could have stopped this. And I wrestled, guys, with that. I wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with that. And that dove me into a deep search for perspective to understand how life works. A deep search for perspective to figure out how life really works according to the Bible. And God showed me to the point that fast forward, I don't know, Six years later, seven years later, me and my wife are getting ready to, yeah, seven years later, actually, give birth to our third child. So excited to have this baby because we didn't know we were going to have our first kids were so hard. Our first one was so hard. She just cried for six months straight. We gave her the bath, you know, after she was born. She was quiet and really alert. We're all, oh, it's so sweet, you know. Then she started crying. She didn't stop for six months. And it was horrible, guys. We love that girl, but it was horrible. I'm not even joking. She's still world famous in our circle of friends of being the worst infant ever. Like we get, we have like, we have like a care center at our house for new parents who have hard kids. Like, come talk, we'll help you. And that's you know because it was just so horrible. We were both in tears all the time, and it was just so bad. And then our son just was so mellow and never caused. He was easy. But he was 19 months later born, and my wife actually cried when she found out he was pregnant with me because he was only 10 months. That was only 10 months old. She's like, another one? I just got this one figured out, you know? So, I mean, anyways, but so we had another baby, and he, um, he was a joy, and our kids were joy. And then we planted, and then we planted the church, and we were like, we want to have another kid, but. Life got busy, and then we planted OCC, and then life got busy. And then my wife just didn't really want to have another kid, and I really did. 
And then we kind of went back and forth, like, what should we do, what should we do, what should we do? And then she got pregnant. And we were happy. She was happy. We were happy. We were both happy. We were real excited. It would have been seven years younger than my youngest, you know? And um, which means she'd be 10 right now. And so, um, so anyways, she was born stillbirth. She died in the womb. And we gave birth to her. And I remember holding my daughter. You know, it was a Sunday morning, early in the morning. We had birth. And holding her, we're crying. We're saying goodbye to her. You know, we cleaned her up. They were really great. We wrapped her up and we took pictures and we sent her away to the morgue. And then, you know, it was done. And we went downstairs and I was in line at the pharmacy getting a prescription for my wife so we can get out of the hospital. And there was this girl in front of me, this woman, about 22-ish. Like I said, it was about 6 in the morning. Looked like she'd been out clubbing all night. Had like the whole, I call it like the club dress. And she looked like she either got a car accident or was beat up or something. You could tell it was a rough night, you know? And of course, I have no, who knows, maybe, maybe she was, you know, a wonderful woman. But in my mindset, I'm sitting there and I'm looking at her and I'm just waiting and I'm just reflecting over what just happened. And all of a sudden this thought, it was almost like just a, it was just a thought that came to mind that said, because I had done some research before I, I was down there and I just kind of researched like how many kids actually go from like, you know, conception to like age 18 and it's something like 50% actually survive, you know, like stillbirths, miscarriages, early deaths, you know, like, and so I'm sitting there thinking, man, one and two, huh? And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, you're one of the one and two. Especially in today's modern day, I'm surprised by that. Stats might be different, I might be wrong, I might have looked up some bogus site, but still, there's a lot of miscarriages. There's a lot of stillborns and babies do die and kids die. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, man, you made it to 22 and this is what you're doing with your life? Do you know? I just wanted to shake her and say, do you know what a gift this is? And then immediately, and I started thinking, why do you get to live and my daughter had to die? And then instantaneously, guys, instantaneously, all of the perspective and all of the values, all of the worldview that I've been just like soaking in and actualizing and memorizing and learning and believing, and it was part of the core of who I was and what my heart was came into being. And I said with a clear, conscious, based on absolute truth, why shouldn't it happen to me? That's called planet Earth. Now there's a lot behind me being able to say that, there's a lot of biblical perspective about the nature of this life and where we live and what happens. But I could say that. And I texted Josh immediately because he was, he was getting ready to preach that Sunday morning. He was like, how's it going? And I said, and then he read it to the whole congregation, which is probably, I don't know what it was like to be there. But I just said, he goes, how's it going? I said, it's all over now, meaning she's been born and she's gone. And because uh, he knew she was dead. And I said, um, I said, um, our hearts are broken, but boy, do we love Jesus. And I could say that dichotomous reality with a whole heart. And we mourned for the next several weeks. And, you know, I'm still on the anniversary of that, and I still think about the 
and the rest. You know? and, um, and we mourn and just of what could have been. But we live in a world, we live in a perspective, in a worldview, in a value system where we are completely okay with that. And that's, that's, there's a lot to that. And we do not feel ripped off by God. And, and we were able to deeply mourn her loss while feeling joy and peace in, in the reality of life, the purpose of this world, the mission that it was on, where it's headed, and what God was doing. None of that was unwavering. And I thank God for that. Because I think if I didn't have that, I would have been done. It would have been back to the fun way. Because what's the point? What's the point? So I thank God for that. So I skipped some things here, but I think we're good. It's 5.50. Let me just close with this, guys. There are some practical tips, and I'm going to give you guys a handout here in a minute, and I hope I have enough tonight. Maybe you can share it with your friend or your partner. And basically, here's kind of the um, what you need to be thinking through. So I want you to write down these two questions. How can I build perspectives? Like, where am I headed? Like, how can I build biblical perspectives, godly perspectives? And how, how do I go about sorting my values? Because these aren't, the perspectives one is a little bit easier because it's more to do with like input, content, reading the Bible, reading books, talking to people. But sorting your values is a little bit more so. The people that you meet with and get help from, ask them these questions. Ask them these questions. And if you're one of those people that's going to answer them, you better figure it out. <laughs> but ask them these questions. And then uh, here's what I also gave you. I gave you a little rescue line in the handout. And it's basically a, a decisional, it's just a compilation of a bunch of notes I've gotten from different things. Of just, and it's not the most perfect thing. And it's not even compre totally comprehensive. It's just my, my stuff, okay? It's key... Um, kind of the key paradigms of decision-making while you're still maturing. It's kind of like a safeguard. Because this heart thing that I'm talking about, this is going to take you years. Sometimes you don't see the benefits of, of, a, of a spiritual investment for 15 years down the road. Sometimes you don't see the consequences of your actions for 15 years down the road. But you still got to live today, right? And so the lifeline is, hey, here's a guide that will help you process some decisions today. And the kind of the key thing you should focus on, I think it's like the second or third bullet point down, is it really has to do with your motives. Sorting out your motives. Like, I kind of see it as like, you know, you're just getting through all the fog and the thick whatever, whatever I'm, whatever I'm clawing through here, okay? <laughs> to get out of your motives, to be able to look at your situation more clearly. Because your motives will what you want <laughs> will drive your decision. And it, what you want isn't always right. So let me close with this. And this is this is um, this is my like grace portion to the talk today. Okay? Um, I, I'm laying you with a heavy burden, and the heavy burden is this is guard your heart because it is the wellspring of life. This is serious stuff. No matter what worldview you come from, you've got to guard it. Because it will be shaped. And you live in, you guys, guys, you're at SC. You live in a landmine 
of alternative ways of living and alternative snares for your heart. And I am glad you're there. I think it's great. I think it's great. But it's dangerous. It's so dangerous. But I am glad you're there. But just be aware. Be aware. Boy, this is a dangerous world. You know, the Bible says be careful how you live. It's the idea of like, it's not just like, be careful how you walk through life, you know. It's like, the idea is acrobatics, like walking on a balance beam. Be careful. Every thought's taken into action. Every breath, you know. But here's the thing. That sounds burdensome, doesn't it? That sounds like, what if I screw up? Am I screwed? And God's grace is so good. He, I don't know how he does it. The reality of God's grace and man's responsibility, they almost seem like two parallel lines that don't ever intersect, but they do, especially in God's reality. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is another one. They seem like two parallel lines that never exist, but, but they're both found in Scripture, and they do intersect in God's reality. I faith in that. But there's three things that are true. So in Colossians 3.12, Paul's telling these people like, hey, here's some things I want you to do. Put this on, this on, this on, kindness, good works, all this stuff. He's telling them all these things to do. He's laying them with things that are very hard for humans to accomplish, okay? But there's three words at the very beginning. He says, because this is true about you, put this on. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you. This is my little devotional for the day. I'm going to leave you with this. And I love this. And if you could get this into your perspectives and you believe this, from the bottom of your core being, your life will change. And it's this. It says you were chosen by God, made holy, and dearly loved. I want you to think about that. This, what he basically just described is the true identity of a Christian. Chosen by God. Think about just, I mean, I'm not thinking about the, I don't want you to think about the theological understanding of how people get saved. I want you to think about the intentionality on God's part about you, Katie, being a Christian. It is by no mistake. Chosen by God. Like he said today, knitted in the womb of your mother. You are, it is, we are so intentional creations of God. And then... Okay, you could say, okay, great, Scott, I'm chosen. What am I chosen for? And what's this God all about? And, and, I'm, and I know I'm in trouble with him because the Bible told me that. So does he just want to, like, punish me? Did he select me for punishment? No, he went ahead and made you holy. Through the blood, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Made holy. You weren't becoming holy. It doesn't say chosen by God to become holy, made holy. It's done, it's finished, it's over, you're made holy. You don't have to worry about it. I told my daughter once when she asked, my daughter is such a cynic. Do we really know there's a God? You know, all growing up. Is he bigger than the mountains? You know, she had all these great questions. You know, She'd just be staring out the window. Daddy! <laughs> And she'd ask a question. Then I'd go into a 30-minute, and then she'd tune out after 30 seconds. 
I learned how to talk simply, finally, to my kids. But um, sometimes I think I just like hearing myself talk. But made holy. This is what I used to tell her. I said, Ellie, this is what salvation is like. This is what Jesus did for us. It's kind of like she was in fourth grade at this time. Kind of like your teacher, whatever, I think it was Mrs. Griffith, tells you to come in and she wants you to write a paper on the unification theory of light as a particle and as a uh, beam, ray, wave, wait, wait. <laughs> Wants you to solve that, and he wants you to translate it into French, German, and let's say Swiss. I put it on my desk in three days. Well, she's gonna fail that, right? She can actually go out and do a whole bunch of googling, and maybe she could really work hard, stay up for three days in a row, and ask a lot of questions, figure some things out. She can put forward to work, right? But it's gonna be an F, guys. It's like her teacher, and this is heretical if you take this too far, guys, so just leave it as an analogy. <laughs> but I it says, kind of like your teacher then says, Ellie, your paper sucked. <laughs> it was your best effort, and it fell short, and you have an F. But guess what? My good buddy Stephen Hawking went ahead and wrote one for you and translated it for you. So I'm just going to go ahead and grade his, and I'm going to give you whatever grade he gets. You know, and that's what you'll get. It's kind of like that, you know, so made holy. And then the last part, and this is the most, so, so now God has chosen you. This has gone longer than I thought. Sorry, we're all going to be late to dinner. Are you guys okay? All right. You know, I guess we could leave now, right? No. Just kidding. Chosen by God. So it's intentional, but intentional for what? Okay. He made you holy. He made you right. Well, one could argue if you know the Bible, one could say, well, what for? I'm a cynic still. I had to know these things when I was younger. I'd be like, okay, great. I'm made holy. I can now relate, like, the metaphysic, physical gap, which if that's even the right words, between me and a holy God. Now that gap is bridged, and I can relate to him because I know I'm holy now, so I can enter his world and communicate with him now, where I couldn't before I was separated. Now I can. That's what Jesus did. But for what? Am I going to be a slave now? Am I going to get ripped off? Am I going to live a life of misery? He's just going to put me on a slave train and I'm just going to, you know what I mean? Like for what? But then he adds the most beautiful part of our identity is dearly loved. And he doesn't just say loved, guys. There's an adverb. And if you're a grammar person, think about that. Dearly loved. This is what that means. You couldn't be loved more. That is your identity. And that is why this is worth it. And that is why not diverting one degree off is worth it. That is why begging God for help and taking initiative to grow your heart and fight for perfection.